0: In this show, we talk to John Kay, one of the world's leading economists, whose life's work has focused on the relationship between economics and business. Together with Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, they wrote radical uncertainty about the impoverished approaches many economists and business strategists take regarding risk in the face of uncertainty. In our conversation, we get a wealth of insight about the judgment challenges facing leaders today and into the future. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast.
1: Scott Allender here, along with the one and lonely John Gomes. (laughs) Thank you, Scott. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling sore. I've I've jumped back into exercise for the first time since, uh, well, high interval, high intensity exercise in the first time in 14 months. So I'm feeling quite sore, but I'm also feeling quite eager and interested to talk to our world-renowned guest today. So um, how are you feeling, John?
0: I'm feeling very excited. Um, our guest has been a, a little bit of a hero of mine for a very long time, um, and I've also got to thank him for, for some significant uh, improvement in one of my investments in Nutmeg, so mm. uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to him from that point of view as well. <laughs> nice.
1: So do you want to introduce our guest, John?
0: Yeah, Sure. So John Kay is one of Britain's, in fact, one of the world's uh, most well-known economists. In the 1980s, he led the influential Institute for Fiscal Studies. He became the first dean of Oxford Side Business School. He's had numerous academic posts. He's written for two decades for the Financial Times, loads of best-selling books, including The Truth About the Markets, and his latest, which is Radical Uncertainty, written jointly with Mervyn King which is about decision-making in an unknowable future. John, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Uh, Pleasure to be with you, Gene.
1: John, it's an honor to have you on the show today. Um, The breadth of your economic insight is uh, obviously immense. So to set the table for this particular conversation, um, we'd like to hone in on your thinking about uncertainty and how leaders can think about it differently. Um, So can we start with some of your thoughts and insights about that?
2: Yeah, Um, if we go back 100 years, there was a distinction made between risk and uncertainty. Risk as being something you could describe probabilistically and uncertainty you couldn't. We think it's time to revive that distinction, which was elided over the 100 years that followed. And actually, uncertainty is uh, imperfect knowledge where you don't know what's going to happen. And uncertain, that means uncertainty can either be good or bad. You know, you go to a new place, you undertake a new project, you don't know whether whether it, you meet new people, you don't know whether this will be pleasurable or disappointing. And it can be either. And it's that kind of uncertainty that makes kind of life worthwhile. You all know the film Groundhog Day in which Bill Murray is condemned to live the same day over and over again. And it's so boring that he tries to commit suicide, but he can't do that either because it isn't in the script. We need uncertainty. And the insight which Frank Knight, a Chicago economist, had a century ago was to say that it was essentially that uncertainty that was a source of profit and the dynamic of a a market economy. You couldn't anticipate inventing the iPhone or to take an even more extreme example, the wheel, because if you'd imagined inventing it, you'd already invented it. Risk, on the other hand, in to most people is something going wrong. Risk is um, you start a project uh, and it fails. Uh, you, You make a plan for your retirement, you lose a lot of money in the stock market and you can't retire to the the kind of comfort you were hoping for, or you have to go on working longer. So risk is bad. Uncertainty can either be good or bad, and uncertainty is, as we're saying, dynamic of a a market economy. Risk is something you need to uh, manage through building strategies that are robust and resilient. So the essence of our thinking is that we've elided that difference between risk and uncertainty, and we need to restore it.
0: What what are the consequences of conflating those two things?
2: The most serious consequence, which which we elaborate, is the growth of uh, modeling, uh, probabilistically generated modeling. And that took us really into the 2008 financial crisis, which was the motivation for Mervyn King and I writing uh, the book about radical uncertainty. It was the ways in which the insistence on thinking about risk in probabilistic terms had led people to put a faith in models which they could not possibly, which could not possibly be justified.
0: So let, let's go back a bit and talk about the ideas that you started to um, elucidate in obliquity: how complex goals are best achieved indirectly, and to many leaders that may sound a little bit counterintuitive but also impractical as they're s- under such pressure to deliver short-term results you you were inspired and i, I watched your ted talk a few years ago on um, talking to sir james black who pioneered the research first at ici and then other companies that led you to thinking about obliquity. can you just outline that those ideas yeah.
2: um black was a player in what was quite a long-term story because at the end of the second world war ICI, the board of ICI decided that the, uh, the future of chemistry and business, which was what they saw their business as being about, the future lay, lay in pharmacology. And so they set up a pharmaceutical division. And interestingly, that pharmaceutical division lost money for 20 years, which is exactly your point about uh, it's very difficult to think this way. Uh, in the short-termist framework which people are put into. But actually, Black was one of the young academic chemists they recruited to that division. And in the early 1960s, Black and his group in ICI discovered beta blockers which were the first effective drugs for, for controlling high blood pressure, which became a big blockbuster drug for ICI. And that was the foundation of the commercial success of the ICI Pharmaceutical Division. And over a period after that, the pharmaceutical division became the main profit driver for the company. Now, there are two aspects to that story that are the way that story subsequently evolved that are worth spelling out. ICI, as I described it in in the forties, fifties, sixties, saw itself as a chemical business. It was explicit that the purpose of ICI is, as they described it, the responsible application of chemistry and related sciences to business. And it was that insight that took them from a a business that was initially in explosives and dye stuffs, into fertilizers and petrochemicals, and subsequently into pharmaceuticals. In the early 90s, under pressures of a short-termist financial market kind we're all familiar with, they changed that view of the company and they said in quite striking to contrast their mission statement, our purpose is to, um, create, share- to create shareholder value by focusing on businesses in which we have a com- cost leadership and a competitive advantage. What happened to ICI was after that pretty dramatic. Um, in 2007, the rump of ICI was taken over by AXA Nobel, and ICI no longer exists as an independent company. So it's a very striking example of how indirection was extremely successful, direction was uh, proved a disaster. But the role of black is an interesting example of that. Black is actually the man who created probably more shareholder value than anyone else in the history of British business. Firstly discovering beta blockers for ICI, and then another blockbuster drug, which was Tagamet, uh, an anti-ulcerant, the first powerful anti-ulcerant, which he discovered at SmithKline. So the reason I was talking to Black is I wanted to know why it was in the 1960s after he'd uh, discovered beta blockers at ICI, he left ICI and went to work for Smith Klein, where he found this other drug and he said the reason for that was pretty simple um, ICI management wanted to me me to go on road shows promoting beta blockers, whereas what I wanted to do was to be back in the lab discovering new drugs and he shook his head and said i." And I used to tell my colleagues that if they wanted to make a lot of money, there were better ways of doing it than pharmaceutical research. How wrong could I have been? (laughs) (laughs) I think of it as the principle of obliquity, complex goals are best achieved when they're not pursued directly. And that phrase, I think of it as the principle of obliquity stuck with me and gave me the title for that particular book. But it was an aspect of what had been a general discovery for me when I got to know uh, more about business and people in business that actually um, successful, the most successful businesses were not actually the, the, most, profit of, the most profit-oriented businesses. Great businesses were people were built by people who wanted to build great businesses and the profits came along along the way.
0: I just want to dig into this a little bit more in terms of the the mindset of thinking about complexity because there's such a drive in organisations to to try and simplify everything to make it as clear and simple as possible, and and I think often it's simplistic rather than simplicity that they're they're striving for. But it sounds to me like you know one of the underlying principles of obliquity of trying to um, find. Answers in this rather kind of indirect way is by embracing complexity, meeting complexity with complexity, which uh, is again is very countercultural. What, what, from a practical point of view, how do you, how do you get teams or people in your
2: scope of field to think like that? Um, how do you get them to embrace complexity? learning to live with it. And one, one of the things that frustrates me is I talk to people who say, how can we possibly achieve multiple goals in, in business? Uh, we have to focus on some straightforward metrics, uh, shareholder value, one or two K- KPIs, or whatever. And I say, is that what you do in your personal life? People who came into uh, a cleaner house an hour ago, uh, they have to do a range of things. If they ask me, so what matters? Getting a clean house, or getting it tidy, or um, uh, saving you work, or whatever. I, my my reaction to that, and this is talking to the cleaners, is going to be say, you, you you know the kind of things we want. We want the same things you want in your own house. Get on and do the job. And of course, they do. <laughs> mm. uh, you know and that that is what actually inspires people to feel that they're uh, they're achieving a common goal which they share with you, which is not which is common, but it's not one single goal, where sometimes put it is no, no one ever uh, aimed to die with he maximized shareholder value on his tombstone. First is <laughs> it it's not a very admirable goal and secondly is no one would ever know afterwards whether he'd done it or not.
1: So I want to stay with this just a little bit longer. I find this incredibly fascinating. So the best way to achieve complex goals is indirectly. I get a lot of questions about how best to shape goals for you know people who have teams or you know even at a at a higher level in business sort of trying to set broader strategy and and knowing how To break that into its component parts in order to achieve the goal. So can we stay with that just a little bit longer? You know, if, if the, if the route is indirect, how would you advise the process of identifying what the big complex goal should be? What would somebody have to engage in? What kind of mindset? What kind of approach?
2: Right. Yep. Yeah. Your your business has to be modular in this sense, and that you're breaking down the tasks for ones that individual people and groups are right are, 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 are going to be caught or are, are going to be engaged in. But you're not. You're defeating the object if you specify in too much detail mm. the metrics by which you're going. They're going to be judged. Mm. They have to be accountable for their performance. Uh, but when they demand, as people from the top to the bottom of the organization do, that you specify in advance the metrics by which you judge their performance, you're actually failing to do the real job you need to do, which is to delegate responsibility Mm. for achieving the overall objectives to individual people within it. Mm. So, I mean, my, my favorite example is something like uh, the, the proliferation of targets in education, for example, we want a head teacher to go in and run a good school. And to be honest, if you need to tell the head teacher what a good school is, he's not the right person to be head teacher. Right, <laughs> and uh, and that's true right across the board. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the next stage is you have the the maths teacher, and you tell him. <laughs> get your class interested in math which is a pretty difficult job uh, but you know when successful teachers have achieved it
0: so many of the guests we have on the show describe some commercial or performance crisis being really about a lack of situational awareness they couldn't literally see what was going on around them at all they were so narrowly focused and i love the fact that you you know you quote richard Rommel's seemingly banal question what's going on here um i should add that uh, good strategy bad strategy is one of my favorite books but what what have you what have you learned about that
2: for for, for being in those situations so many times yeah I, i'm glad you like Rommel's book because um, I, I think it's certainly the best business book written in the last decade or so um and that banal question, what is going on here? It's uh, back to what we were saying when we talked about the Linda problem, in a way. It's you're given disparate facts, uh, and you're trying to frame them into come some coherent narrative. Um, we, talk, uh, right, we talk about inductive, deductive, abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning is really this what is going on here in trying to describe a, a unique situation? is the skill of the good historian or the good lawyer, actually, who's given a batch of disparate and unique facts and has to find a coherent explanation uh, for, for what is happening there. And it, that's a kind of iterative process in which you, you formulate hypotheses and then test them against in additional information about the situation. And that's uh, the essence of handling rapidly evolving complexity.
0: Yes, because m-
2: most organizations are in
0: with these pre-populated templates where they're doing the opposite of that, which is trying to use the template to make sense of a fact. So they've already decided, in fact, what it looks like. They're just looking for supporting evidence to populate it.
2: Yeah, I remember going to one strategy meeting where they just had a presentation where people were were in the way of a certain kind of consultant. They had a two-by-two two matrix of the kind of company you could be. And uh, after listening to some argument about which of these four options this company was, yeah, one said, you know, well, perhaps you aren't any of these. <laughs> it's not a helpful way of describing your business. It was exactly the pre populated template that you're describing.
0: So the the, the, the Financial Times um, uh, gave you a very, very good review of Radical Uncertainty, as did uh, all of the reviews actually that I read at the time when it was published. Um, they, they kind of nudged you a little bit in the ribs with saying it was a rant, albeit a very eloquent one.
2: <laughs> what? Why Why do you think that was? Uh, I I don't have a problem with being a <laughs> rant. Uh, I, I often think I'm too judicious, too balanced and what I have to say.
0: But you mu- you must have uh, you know over the course of your career been quite frustrated with some of the things that you've seen because y- you know you've you've laid out a lot of these ideas clearly as a I wouldn't say a playbook but as a series of principles about how to avoid some of these crises and it doesn't seem like we're we're capable of learning and the technocrats keep trying to come up with the perfect answer to something that isn't solvable in the way that it should be. Do you th- do you see hope that we might actually break out of this cycle of trying to, you know, fantasize about a perfect machine to solve the,
2: the markets? Yeah. It's very difficult because you can see the attractions to people of searching for the yeah. perfect machine. Perhaps it's a bias we have to look in that kind of direction certainly to persuade people that we know less about the world than they would like ought not to be very difficult but it is it's partly i guess you uh, you rise to senior positions by 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 claiming to have this kind of, of knowledge
1: did you know you can find us on twitter at evolving underscore leader we're also on instagram and linkedin If you're on any of these social media platforms, we invite you to follow along and comment on your favorite episodes. Now, let's get back to the conversation.
0: So if if, um, you've sat on lots of boards of organizations, um, and let's imagine that, you know, a new CEO is taking on the challenge of rejuvenating a large organization that's lost its way. It's become defensive, perhaps inward, short-termist. And you, you're, you're sitting there, and you're having lunch with the CEO one-to-one. What would your, 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 your top principles and advice be to avoid the false certitude and think their way through this, the
2: uncertainty that lays ahead? Yeah, one of the things I learned when I started getting involved with business, uh, and this would be true both for me at that, on that occasion and for the CEO, is that you learn about the business by talking most, by talking to people a couple of layers down that they're the ones who are best able to give you insight into the the what is going on here question. And they're more likely to be the people who are dealing um, on a day-to-day basis with customers, suppliers, and people lower down in the organization and have this sense of of what is going on. It's to, again, it's not coming to the world with pre-populated of pre-populated templates. It's listening to people and following these kind of abductive strategies.
1: So, when it comes to decision-making under uncertainty, you have these three ideas um, that you've shared that I, that I wanted to, to hear you talk about, which is um, non-stationary, evolutionary rationality and narrative reasoning. Can you walk us through those?
2: Right, non-stationarity is saying uh, the world about us is constantly changing. We talk, right, we take the example of amazing computational achievement, which was NASA sending a a messenger, uh, an orbiting satellite to, to Mercury to make observations of what happened on that planet. And what they did was they devised a very complicated trajectory because putting it in orbit around Mercury is a difficult thing to do. And it took seven years from launch for them to achieve the position they wanted with that satellite in orbit. And if you look at the trajectory, it has loads of loops and things around it. Now, they were able to do that. And the satellite, when it arrived in orbit in Mercury, was in more or less exactly the position uh, that it had been, uh, that they planned seven years earlier. But think of the things that made that possible. Firstly, we know what the equations of planetary motion are and rocket motion. And we've known these things for hundreds of years. And that leads to stationarity, which is that uh, they'd remained unchanged for several hundred years. Equally important is that they're not affected by our interactions with it, that Mercury doesn't care Mm. what we think about its motion, and we can fire rockets close to it, and that doesn't affect the trajectory of Mercury at all either. So the world is unaffected by our actions and our beliefs about it, and the things that determine that world remain unchanged. I like that example because Mercury is constantly moving, but it's moving in in response to predictable laws and predictable equations. The worlds we have in business and finance are just not like that ever. They're not stationary, they're constantly changing, and they're affected by our interactions and beliefs. That's non-stationarity. What about evolutionary rationality? Right. Evolutionary rationality is raised as an issue because uh, one of the developments in economics over the last 20 years or so has been so-called behavioural economics, and that's had quite a lot of influence on people in business and finance. Now, what what I like about behavioural economics is it is starting to ask questions about how people actually do behave Uh, rather than imposing models and assumptions about how they behave on them. That's an advance, but then it gets framed in terms of so-called biases. I went to a conference on behavioral economics a few months ago, actually just before the lockdown. Um, I went to a conference and there were people sitting at tables and there were about 50 tables in the room each one of which was labeled with a so-called bias, ambiguity, aversion, loss aversion, uh, availability, heuristic, and so on. And I thought, you know, if, uh, if we have so many biases, how do we manage to get through life? Why are humans and the most successful species in the planet? And many of these things, properly interpreted, Uh, should not be regarded as biases. Uh, I mean, overconfidence, over-optimism, for example, is in a sense a bias. Uh, But actually, we talked earlier about the dynamics of a market economy. If people weren't optimistic, they wouldn't get things done. If people weren't confident, they wouldn't be able to inspire other people to get things done, and so on. Many of these so-called biases are in fact what we describe as the product of evolutionary rationality. The things that people have found uh, adaptive over the years. An example I use, which is absurd when you come to think of it, is people are asked to read a a piece of text that says a bird in the, the hand. And most people asked to do that, read a bird in the hand. And uh, this, uh, this is so-called bias. People read what they expect to be there rather than what actually is there. Mm. But then you stand back and think, what? Who's actually making the mistake in this experiment? The person who writes the nonsense, the experimenter, or the person who makes sense of what looks like a, an unsensical statement? Yeah, we, had,
0: cool. we we had an interview with Bo Lotto, who's a perceptual uh, neuroscientist, who was uh, dismissing this notion of biases in very much the same way that wow. you are, and proving out exactly that, that it's an evolutionary response to make sense of uncertainty.
2: Good, <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to hear. Confirmation of that from a different confirmation bias. Yeah, <laughs> we're looking for confirmation all the time. I'm afraid.
0: And narrative reasoning, which is where it gets really interesting, because you're evolving from from the uh, the current
2: uh, uh, behavioral economics. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. And, and right, I can take another example from behavioral economics to illustrate that. It's a story that runs something like: um, uh, Linda read sociology at Anglia Polytechnic was involved in demonstrations against Shell over Bent's Bar and so on. Uh, which of the following do you think is more likely? Shell is, um, Linda's a bank manager. Linda's a bank manager who is active in the woman, woman, uh, woman in Finance Feminist Network. Uh, Linda is a spokesperson for the Animal Liberation Front. And it's a Kahneman-Tversky example, and they found, and I've tried it on various audiences, and you get the same thing. People tend to plump in about equal numbers for each of these. And then the behavioral economists or the biased people turn around and say, this is ridiculous. Uh, First of all, there are thousands and thousands of bank managers and almost no spokespeople for the Animal Liberation Front. It's much more likely that she's a bank manager, and it can't be more likely uh, that she's a bank manager and an active feminist than that she's a bank manager because that you have to know about compound probabilities. And then you stand back from that and think, but uh, that the people are not interpreting this question in the way in which you framed it. They're asking themselves the question, am I hearing a coherent story about Linda? And if I introduced you to Linda with the spiel I gave and said, and by the way, Linda's a bank manager, you'd wonder if you'd misheard, you'd start asking questions to see whether she really is a bank manager. Whereas the other two versions are coherent and consistent. People's responses are, are in this sense, sensible. And that's because the way we make sense of the complex worlds we've been talking about is by telling each other stories. Uh, Probabilistic reasoning is, is quite difficult. One of the things we were quite surprised to discover is that humans, people only discovered probabilistic reasoning, mathematical versions of it, in the 17th century. That's quite surprising. Because the Greeks and Romans they gambled, uh, and there were some people in ancient Greece and Rome who were pretty good mathematicians. Why did they never think about it in this kind of way? And they didn't because people don't naturally think in this kind of way, they think in terms of stories rather than probabilities.
1: I like that. And you, you as, a, as an alternative to these probability models, um, these these. Consistent narratives in a collaborative uh, in a collaborative process. How do you how would one make that transparent and accountable and consistent? How how would one start to do that
2: in an organization? Well, people don't use probabilistic models to make people accountable. Hmm. Uh, they use KPIs and the like to make people accountable. And we've talked earlier a bit about. Uh, bit about that. What they use probabilistic models for is mainly planning and forecasting and the like. And um, the way we, we think about that is that people have to stop believing that they can arrive at quantitative predictions of so many things about the future. And Luke, as I was striving earlier, for robust and resilient narratives. That takes us back to the kind of work that preceded the financial crisis where people thought they could control risks in their banks by complex probabilistic modeling of the kind we've described. Uh, that led to the famous David Vineyard CFO Goldman Sachs episode in which as the crisis broke, he said, we've experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. Well, if you know anything about statistics, you know you don't experience 25 standard deviation events at all, far less uh, several days in a row. What he meant, or should have meant, was that we were dealing with things that were outside the scope of the Goldman Sachs models. And that that was a large part of the problem of the 2008 financial crisis, was people believing that they could rely on um, these models, uh, to control their risks, rather than looking for strategies that were robust and resilient to events which they couldn't expect to anticipate. That's how we should, yeah. how we should think about uh, planning in kind of ways for an uncertain world.
0: What What are you most interested now, as you look forward into the future of your your work? What are the things that are most exciting you about making progress in your field? Um,
2: What I'm most thinking about now is is the idea that we need to rethink the way we frame our thinking about business in terms of defining a business as a, a collection of capabilities rather than a collection of assets. And the traditional model of the business was, as it were, the Adam Smith's pin factory or the General Motors car plant in which you had elaborate capital equipment and you employed a pretty homogenous labor force uh, to go and uh, fulfill interchangeable roles in supplying that plant. One of the odd things when you think about lockdown for a moment is that Something like half the workforce has discovered they can work from home. Uh, and actually, if you ask what capital they're using, it's probably no more than at most a thousand pound laptop. And it's one of many ways of asking, you know, why do we keep talking about capitalism? If most of us can work with a computer that costs a thousand pounds. And if we look at companies like Apple and Amazon, and discover that they they actually don't own anything, the only uh, real things on the Apple or Amazon balance sheets are the cash they've accumulated from operations. Uh, Apple owns its Cupertino headquarters. Amazon doesn't own most of the warehouses it operates, the vans that deliver your produce, or etc. Uh, we should stop talking about capitalism, actually, Mm -hmm. understand that modern business and organisations are defined by their capabilities, Mm -hmm. and it's their ability to identify distinctive and unique capabilities that actually is the source of competitive advantage. It's a different way of thinking about the nature of business, but I think it's a very powerful one, and it's something that needs to replace the kind of language which we've been using a couple of hundred years
1: what do you think it'll take to get there like how do we how do we get businesses to shift in their way of thinking about themselves
2: i'm afraid the only way i do and know of doing about it is is writing books and coming on podcasts like <laughs> step by step yeah
0: what what is uh during the during the last 12 months through the the covid crisis what do you think has been most interesting about how Governments and businesses have responded. What what have you seen that has kind of reinforced your thinking and or made you think differently?
2: Um, well, we've seen uh, we've seen the pretense of knowledge uh, both being displayed and being exposed uh, that uh, people cl- have constantly claimed to have certainties which they they couldn't have. I think, I think the... The largest still open question for me, and this goes back to the, the nature of business, is you hear people saying so much today about how the office will never be the same again and people uh, can work from home and so on. And the question for me is, um, are we really able to do that without the kind of accidental interactions which are the source of so much that is is productive? And that goes back to the the kind of whole evolutionary underpinning of many of the things we've been talking about. It is about random mutations. It's the accidental interchange and so on that generates fresh ideas that generate new capabilities in business. So, on the one hand, what we've experienced in the last year has shown us how far we've moved from the world of um heavy capital equipment big plants and so on to a world in which the, um, the achievements of business are defined by the capabilities of, of groups of people in it on the other hand we have not we, we we have not yet learned to what extent these capabilities of people require people bumping into each other in the office experimenting on the job in order to pr- provide the continued dynamism, which is necessary if our capabilities are to evolve.
0: A recurring theme for us in, on the show has been how leaders can do this perennial challenge or task of trying to balance short-term and long-term objectives, because they, they, they seem to require such a fundamental shift in the way we think and our mindset um, and and the pressures that technology and so on create to exacerbate short-term focus. What, what have you learnt and advice have you got for helping leaders to think about how they can build organisations that are capable of doing both,
2: of, of short- and long-term performance? I think it's really financial markets that are so much responsible for the, the short-term pressures that, that people in business feel. And as I see, see it the best need for reform there is to change the role of the asset manager. The simplest way I have of putting it is I I did a talk at a CFA, Shutter Financial Analyst event the other day, and I said I, I hope that in 20 years' time the CFA syllabus will have a lot less about financial markets and a lot more about business strategy. And I think that's that's the reform we need to move these things in the right direction. And absent that, it's quite difficult to to tell the senior executives of a company that they have to move their eyes away from the screen um, and start focusing on the long-term development of the business.
0: How have you cope with personally? Have you cope with uh, with lockdowns and and the the changes it's had on
2: you? Um, I miss, what I missed most miss of all has been the stimulus of the personal interactions that I'm describing. And it's kind of a, it goes back to what we we're saying in the beginning, as we were, about uncertainty, that there's a sameness about every day
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> at the moment <laughs> that um, leads to a lack of stimulus. And I, I, I feel a kind of let, let, lethargy that, that's coming from that. It's not that I'm not working hard uh but there's less stimulus behind it
0: yeah i wonder what what uh, our neuroscience friends would say about that because i think the 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 interesting thing about getting up every day and thinking what's going to be different you know this almost like new new comfort zone that we're in where there's not much going to happen that's going to be different today so
2: no you're going to stop at 11 o'clock for a cup of coffee yeah
0: (laughs) and and you become hyper excited about what you're going to eat for dinner
1: i (laughs) I was i was actually reading that the word of of sort of 2020 is lethargy right there there was they did a sort of study on how people were feeling and a lot of people were reporting depression but when they really got at the heart of it it was the the most sort of common uh expression of feeling or experience of feeling rather is that idea of lethargy which was really interesting
0: and and i and relatable i i felt it um well, I think John, you know, given given your uh, productivity, the fact that you can acknowledge that you feel lethargic is mm. a pretty amazing. I think it makes us all feel a bit better.
2: <laughs> no, it takes us right back to what we we're talking about at the beginning in Groundhog Day. Mm. That every day is the same. Yeah, you really don't want to go on with that.
0: So when we we let's we go back to one of my uh, team uh, was at business school, and he was very excited. That you were coming on because he said, you know, the truth about the markets, which was a, obviously a, a, a core text on his MBA, was something that uh, really excited him. So, can you
2: talk a little bit about one of the two of the key ideas in that book? Right. I think the key idea is, is that of disciplined pluralism. Why, why do markets work as well as they do? And it's not it's not because uh, economies work well by encouraging people to be very greedy and imposing as few restrictions as possible on what they do. Markets work well because of this factor that I've called discipline pluralism. And that means two things. One is, this is the pluralist bit, that people are free to experiment. You can try out new things. But the discipline means uh, that if these things don't work, people stop doing them. And if they do work, other people are able to imitate them. And it's these things that uh, have been why the only economically successful societies, basically, have been market economies. What tends to happen, and this is equally true in the government bureaucracy or the large corporation, is that you you start to move away from both pluralism and discipline. You will move away from pluralism if you don't have that freedom to try new things and you lose the discipline as well because you don't get the honest feedback which the market gives you uh typically in the large organization people know they will advance their careers by telling the people above them what they want to hear rather than um rather than what may be the case Mm -hmm. the the phrase i always like in that is after khrushchev in in Uh, introduced a series of agrarian reforms uh, which involved greatly expanding the production of maize which didn't work particularly well but he was told under socialism maize can be grown anywhere (laughs) and unfortunately it couldn't Uh, but if you're going to get your head cut off if you (laughs) acknowledge that that was the aligned you to so you cut the honest feedback
0: loops out of the system yeah Yeah.
1: well thank you john for coming on
0: that was a real treat really appreciate your time pleasure that's that's made our friday thank you so much very generous for you to give your time for us and until next time
1: remember the world is evolving
0: so let's learn
1: to live with complexity